and we'll especially look at the interaction between Christ and uh, this Father who brings his Son to be relieved and healed and restored uh, by Christ. And that's especially from verse 17 uh, to verse 24. Teacher, I brought you my son who was a mute spirit, and he describes the condition of the boy. And we have an interaction between the Lord and his Father uh, regarding faith. We saw last time that this problem arose because of unbelief. Uh, unbelief in the entire generation, uh, which Jesus himself says is a problem uh, in this passage. Both faithless and perverse generation. And what that, uh, that arose in Christ's heart in that moment because of the condition of the generation in which he lived. And he, he saw it before he went up the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration, even surrounded by glory. He saw the, the incapacity and the impotence of the disciples and the slowness of their understanding. And though he was greatly blessed, as we saw, in many ways and angles uh, in the transfiguration itself, we saw how he's just confronted by the fallenness and brokenness of the world when he comes down. And that's something we're all confronted by if the Spirit of God is at work in our hearts and we know anything of the blessing of God and the nearness of God in any of those occasions when we sense something of the purity and blessedness and joy of the Lord in our own souls. It's not long before it's immediately confronted by the calamity of this world. And even the Lord, though he's the Son of God, he responds in such a human way to it. Yes, a divine way, he never sins, but the humanity of Christ comes out so clearly. He, he is exasperated. And that's a human emotion. God is never exasperated, but Christ is. And he's exasperated, oh faithless generation. How long must I bear with this? It just keeps coming and coming. It's in his disciples. It's in the crowd. And we saw that they could not cast it out, and that caused them that exasperation. They should have been able to cast it out. They had the authority to cast it out. They had cast out demons before. And the Lord uncovers that something has changed in them. In the three that came up the hill with him, but also in the nine that remained at the bottom. And we listed a catalogue of instances where we can build a picture of how the disciples have changed and stopped listening. And they couldn't receive his word and his teaching about his suffering and the atonement that will come and all of these things. It just built up in them and a self-reliance and a lack of prayer. Certainly in Peter. Peter was not on his knees praying about all of these things. Peter was being very pushy, he was directing, and the rest of the disciples were following that. And you just see this contrast between what Christ expects and what they were actually able to do. And we saw that the remedy to that was humility and prayer, a life of communion with God. And for them to respond to this and see their weakness in this and rely on the Lord in these situations. There is none who stirs himself up to take hold of me, Isaiah 64. We must stir ourselves up and take hold of the Lord daily. 
There's many ways that that applies to us. And there's many ways where Christ's indictment of that generation applies to us. A faithless, unbelieving, unserved generation that does not take hold of the eternal God. We don't know how to do that in the way that many generations in the life of the church once did. So we see the disciples' impotent faith and their problem. But the spotlight turns here to the Father. We have seen a problem in the disciples, but that is not the only issue which Christ sees. He sees an issue with the Father himself. I want us to see this under a few headings. We'll see the boy's condition. We'll see uh, the father's condition. Then we'll see the father's cry. And then the Lord's command. So the boy's condition, the father's condition, the father's cry, and the Lord's command. The situation uh, develops here when Christ comes down. I know we saw how the disciples responded to it, but let's just see with a bit more detail what the situation is. What is this boy's condition? Verse 17, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes stiffened or rigid. And I spoke to your disciples, and they could not cast it out. Matthew says this boy has epilepsy. And he may have had a kind of epilepsy, or all of the symptoms of epilepsy caused by a deeper condition. And although it may be a form of epilepsy and have the symptoms, we know that that's not the main problem. It's not only the father himself who has concluded that it's not only epilepsy, for he believes the boy is possessed. So the father himself who's around his son every day, when he sees his son reacting like this, he doesn't think it's only a physical condition. He has assumed that there is a spiritual element to this, and that the devil is influencing his son in some way. And our Lord confirms that. So we have the authority of God knowing that this is a demon. It's referred to as it, that the demon does this and he does this. The Lord himself, when he commands the demon, in verse 25, calls the demon a deaf and mute spirit. And that is just a fallen angel, a spiritual entity, a spiritual being, that is called that because that's the effect he has on the boy. It's not that the spirit is deaf and mute. It is that when the spirit acts on this boy, those are the symptoms. He binds him, he makes him deaf, and makes him mute. And the boy, when he is thrown into these episodes, has seizures, he becomes rigid and strong and immovable, he grits his teeth and makes noises, and he foams at the mouth. You can imagine if that was happening to your own child, your own son or daughter. It would be an awful thing to see. You have no control over it. It's overwhelming and disturbing to see this. And this father is utterly perplexed about his child. Worse than that, the demon is trying to destroy the boy. 
it often throws him into the fire and water in verse 22. He often has thrown him into both the fire and into the water to destroy him. This is an awful situation. There are a few situations in the Gospels that contend with this as some of the most awful episodes that Christ has to deal with. This is the worst. This is different than healing a blind man or healing a deaf man. And you'll notice that in this instance the demon isn't going for an adult. An adult has been living in sin or inviting the demon in. The, the demon just takes hold of this child and that's what the devil does. He attacks the vulnerable, he sees opportunity, and to destroy this family and to keep this father, and if there was a mother, to keep them from faith and full faith and trust in God. They're not, he's not attacking the father and mother, you'll see that. He's going to the small vulnerable child that is attached to the father and mother and he just shows no mercy. That's the devil is a predator. I mean, he has no problem going for young children. That's what's awful about the situation. And this condition, though it has physical aspects to it, um, it is a picture of a spiritual reality that we all have to be aware of. For the boy and his father, it really was a spiritual reality. He was actually possessed. <clears throat> and we saw last time that possession is not common anymore, if at all even happening. We, we, we don't know if people are possessed anymore. Certainly th people think they've been possessed in these things. But it's not like this. This was allowed to happen, as we saw, in the Gospel age, because of the presence of Christ and because of the signs and miracles that he was performing, this, the kingdom of darkness is allowed to reveal itself too. So you see these two vivid um, kingdoms coming out from hiding, as it were, from their hiddenness, and the spiritual realities behind both kingdoms are just seen in flashes in the Gospel. And that's for our benefit. Although this boy was actually possessed, the lesson you and I must take from it is not the possession itself or the extreme case that we have here, but we are to take it as a revelation to us of what is always the case. This is a lesson and a window into the kind of thing we are all up against in Christ. We know that uh, Christ's miracles generally represented other truths. When he healed blind people, it wasn't simply a physical thing he was dealing with. It had a spiritual reality behind it. Whenever Christ healed a blind man, the lesson there is not only that Christ can heal the body, it is that Christ gives us spiritual sight, the light of the world. And you can, you can list all of those. If you think of all the healings Christ did, there's always a spiritual lesson behind it. The, the impotence or, or lameness of someone who's paralyzed, who hasn't walked for 38 years or something like that, and Christ raises them up in strength, that isn't just a picture of Christ's power over the body, but there's a spiritual lesson behind there. We are all paralyzed spiritually without Christ. <clears throat> we can't move spiritually. We're not sensitive spiritually. We have no strength spiritually. We are not whole spiritually. When it's the ears, he unstops the ears of the deaf. That's a picture of man's inability 
to listen to God. And so it goes on. So that's a good Bible study for you. If you look through all of his healings, you'll see the spiritual lesson behind each one. This is the most extreme case of all of that. Sin may affect our spiritual sight, our ability to listen, our sensitivity and strength. The great, one of the greatest is death itself. When he raises Lazarus, that's teaching us that we're dead spiritually and that we need raised. This is the worst of all of these. This is a picture, as we were looking at the boy's condition, this is a picture for us of the condition of sin. This is a picture of the dominion of sin and of the devil in these situations. And how sin and Satan affects a soul. Just take, for example, sin and what sin actually does to us. This boy is dominated and a slave to this demon. The demon is stronger than him, and when the demon takes hold of him, the boy doesn't speak coherently, he doesn't say anything beautiful or good. The gnashing of the teeth and the foaming at the mouth, these are not lovely things or nice things. This is a, a picture of destruction and the deformity of sin as it takes hold of us. Take, for example, uh, what Paul said about sin in the letter to the Romans. Now, we read from Romans 4. I'm going to read a couple of verses from Romans 6. If you're able, you can turn to that quickly, or you can listen to me read it. Romans 6, verse 15. Listen to what Paul says sin is. Shall we sin because we are not under the law but grace? Certainly not. He tells us not to interact with sin anymore. Do you not know... <clears throat> that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which you were delivered. And you have been set free from sin and have become servants or slaves of righteousness. Verse 20. You were slaves of sin. You were free in regards to righteousness. Verse 22. But now, having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God, have your fruit to holiness, and the end, everlasting life, for the wages of sin is death. Paul's picturing sin there as a slave master. And that's exactly what it is. We have no real control over it without the Spirit of God and without Christ. In our natural condition, we are not free. People think they're free. People think that they have liberty, that they are their own God and their own master. Even in this country, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and the, the sovereignty of the individual, and there are great concepts about how free the individual is and how the government should not interfere, and how we're free to make our own decisions. And you say to someone, this is what you should do, and they say, who are you to tell me? I am my own master. But the truth is, slave, uh, sin, is our master, without Christ. The person may not know it, but they are being moved and dominated, as I prayed earlier, with an inclination to evil, a sinful nature that wants everything that's not God, and that is pushy and dominating and ultimately destructive. That sin it kills 
It is a condition which we have that is like a magnet that is drawn to disobedience and unrighteousness at all times. <clears throat> Sin takes hold of a person and unchecked by the Spirit of God and without the introduction of the Spirit of God into the life, the sin just takes hold of someone and all of their faculties and minds and emotion and all of these things it just weaves its way in like a disease and it takes hold of the person and it doesn't let go and Paul says without Christ you are a slave to sin you are dominated by it so Christ needs to redeem us from that I know all of us in here know that this morning that is what redemption is. It is to buy back or to set free someone who has been taken captive. Christ has to redeem this boy in a kind of physical sense, to actually physically cast out that demon. But there is a picture there of the Lord as our Redeemer, having to break the shackles of sin, and the presence um, and possession of sin in us, and free us from it. But it's worse than that. It's worse than that, because... The dominion of sin doesn't operate by itself, it is actually in the hand of the evil one. We are not only under the dominion of sin, ultimately we are under the dominion of Satan if we don't have Christ. John says in his first letter that the whole world lies in the wicked one. It's under the dominion and control of the wicked one. Paul says to Timothy that, you, that they must accept and embrace the doctrines of the gospel if they are to escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. These are awful things, and maybe we don't think about them. Uh, we think of this demon possession here as this very unique thing, but the truth is it's a picture of what's happened all of the time. You may uh, think it's strange or maybe never thought about it before and how active the evil one is in men and women and what the condition of sin actually is. Take this as an example of what Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 1 and 2. He tells us what kind of slavery and dominion this is. He made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So there's the first one. But listen to this. In which you once walked according to the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Paul calls the evil one there, the devil, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. What an awful truth that is, and when we discover it for the first time, we're amazed that this world isn't filled with neutral people. It's not filled with people who are um, only have psychological or moral problems, but what is animating the influence and power behind that sinful condition in the world is the presence and activity of the enemy of the Lord, the devil himself, an intelligent spirit with power, with archangel power, who has a kingdom that works and moves around all of the sons and daughters of disobedience. And Paul, Paul just makes it clear 
He works in them. That means he's at work in their minds, in their decisions, in their desires. They are not only captive to the fact that they are fallen, but they are under the control of the enemy. They're not as extreme as this. They're not actually possessed. And a lot of them Satan hides from and just nudges them and influences them so that they do not know that he exists. What is his greatest deception? That he doesn't even exist. But he is at work in uh, these people. What an awful thing that is. Just to seal that for you, the Lord Jesus Christ said in one of his parables, uh, in Matthew and Mark, he pictured the soul being saved as a palace, a house, and he said a strong man is resident in that house. When he's speaking about casting out demons, he says, the strong man is resident in that palace, and he guards it with weaponry. Unless someone stronger comes and binds him and casts him out. There's a picture from the Lord himself of the kind of influence and attitude that the evil one and his multitudes have towards men and women. He binds them. He has enslaved man from the beginning. He's injected him with sin and he's tied him up and he holds him and he wants to hold on to him and he will guard him viciously whenever the Lord comes near to set that person free. That is what is happening here. It's an extreme physical case of it that you and I need to be aware of it. This boy is seizing, this boy is foaming at the mouth, he's aggressive and gnashing his teeth and becoming rigid, he's throwing himself into fire. This boy is dominated and ruled by the kingdom of uh, darkness. And when the Lord comes near him, <coughs> um, in verse 20, when they bring the boy near Christ, the boy convulses immediately and falls on the ground, foaming at the mouth. That's what happens. The, the devil has his hold on us. The devil has his hold on those around us. And whenever grace or salvation comes near that person, there's a convulsion and a defense from Satan to try and destroy and make sure that that work doesn't happen. These are awful things. You and I are just no match for any of this. But the Lord tells us graciously that we need to be aware of it. We might be like the disciples, that we cannot deal with this properly. But we need to watch like the disciples do here. We need to look at our Lord who tells us that although this is an extreme case, you and I need to take this seriously, that those around us are held by an evil one who wants to destroy them, who, who is a murderer from the beginning, and who wants to destroy them eternally. That's why we're in the kingdom. That's what our faith is. That's what Christianity is. We're in this like the disciples. There's many things we become confused about. But when we look around, we must see that this is the kind of thing. He's deceiving people and binding people. And we need to take that seriously. When we walk past people in the street, when we uh, watch, when we watch the TV and we see famous people, or we look at politicians, or we go to sporting events or whatever it is, we are surrounded all the time by people who are enslaved to the devil. That's the situation we are in, and that's the situation this boy was in. So that is the boy's <coughs> condition. What about the fathers? 
condition. Where this man comes to the Lord Jesus Christ with a great need, and he thinks it's the greatest need of the family. Myself and my wife are okay, it's our son. And he, he says that to the Lord um, in verse 22 at the end, if you can do anything, if you can, have pity on us and help us. This father looks at what we just looked at and says, this boy is in need. Help us, Lord. But the Lord's response is very surprising. The Lord doesn't just cast out this demon and save the boy. The Lord shows us that there's an issue with the father himself. That's what surprises us. You'll notice how the Lord responds to him. He says to the Lord, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything, and Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Now there's a, there's a translation problem here. The NESB puts a question mark there in verse 23, if you can. Do you see that? The NESB thinks that the man is asking a question, uh, that the Lord, sorry, is asking a question. That the man says, if you can do anything, and that the Lord says to him, if you can, you're asking me if I can, of course I can. The question mark obviously isn't in the Greek. They've, they've put that in because that, that's a legitimate way of understanding the verse. But there's another legitimate way of understanding the verse. That the man says to Christ, please help us if you are able. And then Christ turns to him and says, if you are able. If you can. Because all things are possible to him who believes. See, in the Greek it's just the short expression that the man says to Christ and then there's a strange thing in the Greek but it's, a, it's an incomplete sentence that the Lord just says, if you can. Now I think it's the second way we're to interpret this. That the man says to the Lord, what can you do? And the Lord says to him, well what can you do? Do you believe? He says all things are possible to him who believes. And the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. We're, we're given an insight here into the fact that the Father has a problem. I know that's a bit complex, but we can't take this any other way. We, we can't ignore the fact that the Lord acts this way in people's lives. It's not that people can just say to him, help my son, and the Lord says, okay. The Lord says to him, well, what condition are you in? What is going on with you? My disciples couldn't cast it out because of their unbelief. Because they weren't relying on me. Because they weren't near me. And they weren't accepting the entire testimony of God and exercising daily faith in that God and in me. They couldn't cast it out. What about you? Do, do you believe or are you also bound by this unbelief of the generation? Lord, if you can help us. The Lord says to him, if you can, all things are possible to him with the leaves. So the Lord is uncovering something in the Father. And what he's uncovering in the Father is that the man doesn't have a complete settled faith. That the man is wanting something done for his son, 
but he's not sure if the Lord can do it. You see that? He calls him teacher at the beginning of the passage, verse 17. And then when he actually makes his request, he doesn't say, Lord, cast him out. He says, if you can, if you're able. He's not sure if this man is able to cast him out. So this man has uh, unbelief. And that is a lesson to you and I. Um, we may think that we have several needs. We may be coming to God daily asking Him for certain things. A lot of them may be physical. A lot of them may be for family members. Um, a lot of them may be our situation, our work and geographical situation, our, our friendships, those who we're witnessing to. Most of these are genuine concerns that Christians ought to have. But if that's the only concerns we have, we've stepped away from the center. Because our greatest need, if, if, if we're in Christ, our greatest need is all the same. Our greatest need at all times is faith. And our greatest problem at all times is unbelief. It's an awful thing, but that, that is what we are, that's our problem. That is the foundation and root of all sin. All sin. Our, our greatest problem is not our pride. Our greatest problem is not the words we speak. Our greatest problem is not our thoughts. Our greatest problem is not sexual immorality. Our greatest problem is not X, Y, or Z. You can add all the things that are the things that are bothering you right now or frequently bother you, spiritual problems. But the root of them all is unbelief. The world fell because of it, because of unbelief. Not accepting and actively believing all that God is and all that he said. That's what Adam and Eve did. That's what Noah did. And that's what Abraham did. It's always unbelief. We're not capable in our fallen condition of believing at all times everything God has said. We're always caught out by it. Did he say that? Does he really require that of me? Does the scripture really mean that? Do I really need to listen to this admonition? Uh, do, I really, do I really need to uh, listen to this advice? Uh, we have all of these problems. Questioning everything God says. And we may come to Christ and say, Lord, I'm coming in faith and I'm a fearful person and I, these are my requests and you are a gracious God. You are my Father. Please grant these requests. Please help my, my work situation or please help my, my son or my daughter. Please, please help my wife or my husband. Please help my physical condition. But we're never asking God to reveal to us our unbelief and our need of faith. We're never going to the root of the problem. In fact, we could be pulled into a situation where we're always asking God for other people. That, that's a trick of Satan and that's, that's a self-deception too that sin may do to us. We may feel that we're very compassionate because we're always, 
We have, we have prayer lists, there's lots of people on them, and we're always willing to help, and we're always looking at the needs of others. And a lot of these needs are very temporal and in front of us, and we can do something to help, and we can pray for this person. And then we, then we go home and we say, I'm a, I'm a good active Christian right now, because I'm very interested in others. But the Lord says to the Father here, Yes, your son has a great need, and you are interested in others, but how interested are you in yourself? Sin is a deceiver, and it does, sin doesn't want to look at the self, and it doesn't want to self-examine. Do you see how that can be a deception for you? That, that we, can, we can present ourselves as so concerned about others, but actually it may be that we don't want to look at ourselves. I ask you, are, are you ever looking at yourself? Or are you obsessed with your wife or your husband or your children or family or, or uh, your grandchildren, whatever it may be, and you, you look around and there's lots of good things to do, but when do you ever sit alone and say, what is going on with myself and the Lord? What, what is going on in here? Christ graciously comes to a man who has a genuine need. And our Lord does not behave like the created Christ of the church, but he behaves as the Son of God. The created Christ of the church blesses everyone immediately, and he gives everyone what they want, and he's not intelligent or wise. The Christ of the scripture is very different. This man is desperate, and Christ says, hold on a second. Before we even get to your son, what is going on with you? And what this father requires, what his condition is in his unbelief, what he requires is faith. To not be unbelieving, but full of believing. Biblical faith. The great central tenet of the, the reformed faith that, that was rediscovered the act of grace by which all Christians ought to live. We are people of the faith. We are people who must believe in God. We are people who must believe in Christ and all that he says and does. As it filters into our own life and experience, <coughs> we are to be people of faith. How does that faith work? Full belief in the entire testimony of God and the work of Christ, that he shows it to us in the gospel and by grace as Christians, and that when we look upon it, we entrust our entire soul to him. That is faith. It is to believe what he said and entrust. That, that's what believing means. You believe objective things, but then you entrust yourself to him because you have faith in him. Some people think faith is just knowledge. It's just knowing the doctrines of the gospel and the reform of faith. And if you accept that they're true, you have faith. That is not biblical faith. Faith must see the truth, and in light of the truth, faith moves, and it entrusts itself to the one from whom all that truth comes. That is saving faith. That's what it means to be saved, my friend. If you're not saved... If you're questioning if you are saved, if you're not sure where you are in that situation, faith hears the voice of Christ in a passage like this, and it looks upon him and it says, I need him, and all that he's said and done, 
this is the only one who can save me. And faith looks upon him and moves towards him and takes hold of him and doesn't let go. That is saving faith. And that is growing faith for the Christian. We don't just do that once. That should happen to us. You know, Peter says, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Christ says, seven times seven. And we could say the same thing for faith. How, how often should we exercise faith? All the time. Every time it's challenged or undermined by sin or Satan. The Christian must continually look at the Lord Jesus Christ and be tested as he tested his father. I need this. And God says, where is your faith? And that is a challenge to us to exercise faith. To take a hold again of the Lord. And to grow in that trust and grip that we have of Christ. So remember that. And ask yourself if you're doing that. That's a definition of a Christian. Just ask yourself right now. Am I a person that looks at the beauty of Christ and that longs to see him each day and that when I see him and his ability in love and in faith I take hold of him as my only hope? Ask yourself that. <clears throat> the great chapter on faith in Hebrews says without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who believes in God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. This man can't please God. He can't truly please God here. And Christ just wants to fix the bone first. That's all he wants to do. He's not rejecting the man. But this man can't please Christ. Because he's too focused on his son. And he's not dealing with his own unbelief. As natural and as how much compassion we have for him. We, we don't beat this man down because we have it too. But yes, we understand. But that doesn't excuse it. This man cannot please Christ. And because of that, Christ says to him, Well, if you can. Because all things are possible to him who believes, my friend. Do you believe? And therefore then I will act upon your son. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. A full faith, a grasping faith, an entrusting faith that lays our soul united to Christ and in his care for all eternity. That is saving faith. If you have that, you have the only thing you need tonight. You have the treasure of the gospel and it will never be taken from you if you have that kind of faith. The son's condition, the father's condition, then the father cries. The father cries. In verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, I believe. Help my unbelief. We have another translation problem here because lots of the manuscripts say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And the manuscripts that the NESB has used just doesn't have that word in it. Uh, so we have to be careful with this. The word may have been in there or may not have been in there. We don't know if it was added or we don't know if some uh, copyist took the word Lord out and now we've lost the word which should be there. Whether it's in this verse or not, we know that he is the Lord 
and that those who came to him in the gospel called him Lord. So we won't worry too much about that. But the point is that he cries in response to Christ, I believe. He didn't say that first. He said, if you can, if you can do anything at all, please help us. What does he say now? I believe. Help my unbelief. See the change. The very test that Christ gives us when he tests whether the unbelief is there and he speaks his living word into the situation, the very test that we would think would discourage the man is the very thing that creates a reaction of faith. It stimulates the soul. God does that to us. He comes to us and he, he, he says to Elijah, what are you doing here? He, he, says to, he, he says to the disciples, why is it that you have no faith? He says to Adam, where are you? These words from God stimulate something in us. He says to this man here, all things are possible to him who believes, so do you believe? And that very question makes the man self-examine. It almost injects life into his soul. He comes first in a condition. I don't know if you can do this. We're desperate. If there's anything, please do it. And the Lord speaks to him and resets the bone and says, this is about your faith. And it rises out of the man as he looks at Christ and hears his response. I believe. Help my unbelief. Notice that changed too. The man first said, help us. Help my son. Help the family. Help us with this demon. What does he say here? Help my unbelief. His, his request has changed. You see that? We go to God, as I said earlier, with all kinds of requests, and he will not answer them until we grow and we are put right, and we learn that the Christian life is mainly about dealing with your own soul and making sure it's right. Not all the needs all around us, even in our family. God will not play our game. He will not bow to our priority system at all. He will not come to us and ignore our sin and our unbelief and all the difficulties that we have in our own soul. He wouldn't just step over that to save our children or help our children. He will deal with us or our husband or wife or whatever. He will not step over these things to help to do what we ask him to do if we are not willing to deal with our own souls. Help us, Lord, if you can. And then he cries out, help my unbelief. There is a mark of grace. There is the proof of a Christian evangelical grace. There is the proof of an authentic work of God in the soul. Those who have come to Christ with all their need and entrusted their soul to Christ, even when they come with other needs, there is a proof here and a mark of grace that when the Lord speaks to us, we become very conscious and very convicted of our own unbelief and failings. That is a mark of grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn for their sin. That conviction 
is one of the clearest signs that the Spirit of God is at work in our souls. Even if we see a good thing, even if we see some belief, even if we see some love, it is just the fact that the true work of God in our souls will reveal to us, even when we love people, the true burden of the Christian is, I do not love them enough. I am not as loving as I ought to be. Though I may believe some things and even trust in Christ, I realize that I am not as believing and as near to Christ as I ought to be. Faith works that way. It sees the infirmity of our own prayers and faith and Bible reading and worship and interactions. It, that's what true faith does. It sees the holes in all of these things and it's not comfortable with them. There are many spurious and superficial responses to this. And you can hear it sometimes. People say it's not a big deal. Everyone's like that. All Christians are this way. True faith doesn't respond that way. True faith doesn't see unbelief or a failure and then immediately excuse it or explain it away or pretend that it's not important or offensive to God. It, re it reacts the way this man does. Faith says this, I can't stand the unbelief in my life. I have a mixed bag. I have a mixed faith and a mixed love and a mixed worship and a mixed consecration to Christ. There is gold and there are gems, but there is dross and muck. There is the beauty I see sometimes of what Christ is doing, but there is the ugliness and the filth of all that offends God. That's the way faith responds. Is that you? Is that you? Is that what you're thinking about? Is that what you think about when you go home? And does that bother you through the week? I know to some extent, because I, I speak with you, I know that that's true. That you look and you see many good things, but you know, you know that there are problems and you know that there is the spiritual malady is still in you and you say like this man, I do believe but I have unbelief and you may even get so far as to say help my unbelief it bothers you and the mark of grace is so clear in your soul that you actually ask your saviour to help you with it help me Lord Put this right, Lord. Help my unbelief. Help me in these spiritual matters. How awful it is if, if there are any among us that say, I believe, or I love, or any of these things, but I know I have this corrupting opposite too. Period. That's just the way I am. Or it's not as bad as 
people think, and I certainly tell myself it's not, it's not as bad. Please do not be in that condition. If you are never on your knees crying, help, then how can you say that this Savior is yours? How can you have a Savior if you don't want to be saved from these things? We can't call him Savior and not cry help. And not help for my son, or help for my work, or help for my situation, or help for this, and help for that, and help for all these things. You aren't asking for help, you're asking for God to give you all of these treats to make your life easier and better. You must cry, help me. Help me. I believe. Help my unbelief. The son's condition was awful. Sin and Satan and his dominion. The father's condition reveals an incomplete faith in the Lord, a hindered faith. It may not have even been a saving faith at that point. He knows this man has power, but he's not exercising faith and taking hold. And the Lord reveals it to him and says, what are you going to do? Are you going to place your faith in me? Are you going to set your faith upon me? You're going to entrust your soul to me? You must do it. You must do it. God doesn't repent. God doesn't believe for us. God doesn't obey. It's, it's me that needs to repent, and it's me that needs to believe, and it's me that needs to obey. Yes, it's created by God. It is formed by God and given to us by God. But it's not God that places faith in Christ. It's you. And when you hear the call of faith, with its electricity to make you live, when you hear that call of faith, you must move and act, you must move towards it and not refuse it. When he says, stretch out your hand and your arm will be made whole, you don't leave your withered hand in there like the man in the synagogue and say, well I can't stretch out my hand until God enables me. No, he said to the man, stretch out your withered hand, and as he stretched it out he became whole. So we must stretch out our faith as this man was called to do. And when he then he cries, help my unbelief. And that's the mixture of the Christian heart and a mark of grace that we must look at in our own souls and see if that is the way we speak. Uh, let me close by saying something about the Lord's command. The son's condition, the father's condition, the father's cry, and the Lord's command. And that is in verse 25. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter no more. Let's leave on a note of triumph. The disciples failed and this man has his failings. Look at our Lord. He has complete command over the kingdom of darkness. Notice he rebukes the spirit. He doesn't like the spirit. He condemns the spirit and he condemns Satan, even today and in our own lives. 
He is the Lord of the living and the dead, the ruler of heaven and earth, and he has the keys of death and of hates. And he is the commander of all the armies of heaven. And he created these spirits, these angels that have fallen into utter darkness. And they know him. We know that you are the Holy One of God. Have you come to torment us before the time? They, when they see Jesus coming, they know this is the second person of the Trinity, our Creator. And here he comes. And the Lord, though the man is weak and the disciples are weak, the Lord looks at the Son and he commands this demon to leave him. And the boy is made whole. And the Lord does the same today. Whether it's someone who is not saved, who we know and that we pray for, and that we witness to, or whether it is the presence of evil and sin, even in our own lives on a day-to-day basis, or seasons of great difficulty and temptation and unbelief and worry and anxiety, we are sometimes crowded around by the kingdom of darkness. And if we cry, help, Lord, help my unbelief, help me grow in this Protect me from this. Deliver me from evil, as the Lord commanded us to pray. The Lord Jesus Christ in glory is not far away. He sees all this. And if we cry to him, or even sometimes if we don't cry to him, he is still our Lord and protector. And he stands in authority and power in this situation. He said to the disciples, well, the disciples said, we were not able. That's the word for power, the word dynamic. The disciples said, we were not dynamic to cast it out. And the man said to Jesus, if you are dynamic to cast it out. Well, the Lord is dynamic. He has dunamis. He has power that these don't have and that we don't have, that the Lord has command over this demon and he has command over all of the influence of that kingdom in our lives. What protection and what grace, what power he has in our lives. And we need deliver from it, friend. We need to pray for this daily, deliver me from evil. And the final word on this is we need delivered from it eternally. You all know that outside of Christ when someone dies they are plunged and inundated with this darkness and they are in the presence of these for eternity and they fall and gnash their teeth and are in disorder and they are mad with fury and anger with broken and destroyed consciences for all eternity and they suffer. This is not only a picture of dominion that Satan has in this world. We see in this boy an example of the very thing we must avoid in eternity. If we die outside of Christ, this is a picture of what we will be like. Is this something that can be handled? Is this something to be taken lightly? Is this something... That if you were told by a doctor it was going to happen to you soon, is this something you would put off? No. The Lord has the command over these, my friends. And we must all ensure that this never happens to us.
May the Lord give us the grace to make sure that it does and not. Now let's stand and call on God's name in prayer. Let us pray. Let's stand. Everlasting God, we praise you that you redeem and save from the effects of sin in this world and the effects of Satan himself. And we bless you that though we were all unbelievers and though we still have that unbelief in many ways in our own souls, we praise you that you come to us to help as we did for this man and his son. We praise you for your compassion and we ask that you would do these things in our own lives <coughs> for us and for our children that you would cast Satan out in all of his influence and that we would have saving and growing faith set upon you unquestioningly and with trust and love and determination and that we would look upon Christ daily as every Christian must with faith and love. Lord, help us to not avoid the clear calamity of sin and this condition that awaits those who are outside of you, especially if we are young. How confident we are when we are young and how our desires are on many things. But show us, Lord, the reality of death, the reality of the effects of these things in this world, how quickly it can come and destroy lives, and show us the reality that soon we face an eternity beyond this world, that we are only in this world for five minutes, and then we shall remain in the next world. O oh God, stir up our souls and give us an urgency to cry to you today. Help, O oh Lord, for we ask it in Christ's name for his sake. Amen.